0: is our last message in the book of Exodus, and the third message in this uh, little section of Exodus that deals with this incident of the Israelites and their idolatry, their worship of the golden calf, at the same time that Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from God, and uh, the dilemma that we've seen them face in the last two weeks. Uh, How can a holy God dwell among people who are sinners, whose hearts are set on idolatry? Well, the tabernacle is the Lord's wonderful solution to this dilemma. So the Israelites so quickly and willingly fell or jumped into idolatry. They were worshipping the golden calf at the very same time that Moses was receiving the law, which was the pledge of the Lord's faithfulness to the covenant he was making with them to be their God and they his people. And we saw last week that because of their sin, the presence of the Lord is now outside the camp, a long way off, marked by the tent of meeting and it's accessible only by Moses and a select few. So the people could only observe from a distance as Moses entered into the presence of God to hear him speak and emerge with a face shining with God's reflected glory. And so we left them last week wondering what will happen next. Will the Lord revoke his covenant, abandon them and choose some other nation instead? Or will he choose to somehow forgive their sin and come as he promised to dwell among them as they travelled to the promised land? Now, I've already said that what's happening in these chapters of Exodus isn't the Lord changing his mind or going back on his word or making things up as he goes along. There's a very deliberate plan behind everything, even their worship of the calf. We might ask the question, why did he allow all this to happen? He had the ability to intervene and to stop their idolatry. He could have sent a lightning bolt to destroy the calf before they had a chance to worship it. He could have spoken audibly to them, commanding them to stop. He could have overridden their wills and sovereignly changed their minds so that they didn't want to worship the calf. Now, all of these things he he has the ability to do, and he has the absolute right to do as the sovereign creator and ruler. But the reason that he allowed it isn't, as I often hear it reasoned, because he has an obligation to respect our free will, or because he had to allow the Israelites to choose to worship him of their own volition, otherwise it wouldn't be genuine, heartfelt worship. God is the only Person, the only being who has true free will he alone can choose to act and work without being influenced or coerced by anyone or anything else he's not obligated to respect a creature's free will to the contrary as creatures we are obligated to respect his freedom as the creator the reason behind this whole incident is really the opposite to God needing to respect human free will. Allowing them to follow the desires of their hearts to jump so quickly and easily into idolatry shows us not their freedom, but their bondage. Remember what he said about them in Exodus 32.9. I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Have you ever had a stiff neck from an injury or strain, unable to turn your head freely? Is anything but freedom to be set in your own ways, unable and unwilling to turn to the left or right to hear and obey anyone else, let alone God himself? The reason the Lord allowed them to go this way was to teach them that while they were physically and socially and politically free from their Egyptian slave masters, there remained another form of slavery, a slavery of their hearts. This is the true slavery that must be dealt with if any person is to be truly free. No amount of external freedom means anything if the heart is still bound to sin and its idols. And conversely, if a person's heart has been truly set free from sin and idolatry, then no amount of external bondage or oppression will be able to destroy that freedom. Jesus said in John 8, 34 to 36, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now that might sound a bit harsh to you. I commit a sin, and suddenly I've become a slave to sin? Well, that's not what he's saying. Remember, the heart of sin is idolatry. It's not a list of the bad things I do. The sins that I commit are the fruit of what's in my heart. A heart that loves my idols instead of loving the Lord my God will produce acts that are sinful. But a heart that has been set free from idols to love God will produce acts that glorify God and serve my neighbour. And see how Jesus is saying the solution to this slavery to sin isn't to just stop doing bad things and start doing good things, because that does nothing in terms of our relationship with God. Instead, we must be removed, set free from our slavery and be adopted into the family to become a son Not meaning we become male, but that we're given the privileges and freedoms that a firstborn son had in a Jewish household. Not because of our actions, but because of our family relationship to the father. So the Lord has handed the Israelites over to their sin. He's caused them to see the consequences of their sin by separating them from himself and declaring to them the rightful judgment they deserve for turning their affections from him to an idol. It's actually a reenactment of Eden, when the first woman and man looked to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thinking they could grasp hold of the things that can only be received from their creator, in direct defiance of his command to them. They listened to another word, the word of the serpent, foolishly believing that disobedience to God wouldn't result in death. So this whole incident demonstrates that the Israelites, like us, are no different, no better, no more moral than anyone else on the planet. We all remain sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and we'll just keep doing over and over again exactly what they did unless there's a sovereign intervention by God to do something about our stubborn hearts and our stiff necks. The tabernacle, as I said, is the Lord's solution for the Israelites to this problem, and it serves as a visual representation of what God does in dealing with the sin and idolatry problem. The tabernacle, the objects and furniture in it and its layout did three things. Firstly, it reminded them of the reality of their sin and the ongoing need of reconciliation with God. Secondly, it provided them with the temporary solution to this need. And most importantly, it pointed forward to when these symbols would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. The tabernacle is a glorious picture of God's grace towards sinners. It provided the means for him to make his presence move from outside the camp to the centre of the camp, so that he was truly dwelling among them, as he promised. But secondly, it's a picture of his gracious accommodation to the weaknesses and limitations of us, his creatures. While his word alone was sufficient for the Israelites to believe, as they heard him speak through Moses, as they obeyed the written law, And this was the lesson they were taught when they ran out of food in the desert and the Lord provided bread from heaven. They were being taught that they did not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yet because of their weaknesses, he gives them this tangible, three-dimensional, visual representation of the covenant so that every day as they went about their business, they would be able to see this reminder that their God has done something in order to make them his people so that he might dwell in their midst. That's why six whole chapters and more are given over to this description of the supply, design and building of the tabernacle and its furniture. This morning we read only the conclusion to this lengthy section, and I want to just give a brief overview of uh, chapters 35 to 39 and just highlight a few things in them. In chapters 35 through to 36, there's the call to make contributions of materials and expertise for building the tabernacle. Remember how they were instructed to take off all of their ornaments those that they had plundered from the Egyptian neighbours when they'd left. And some of those ornaments had been used to make the golden calf. And in 35, 33, 5, he says, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Now they're called to give of these ornaments and more, not to engage in idolatry, but to build the tabernacle for God's presence. In making the calf the people were commanded to give their gold, but for the tabernacle the giving is done freely without compulsion. thirty five twenty nine says, As all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, they brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And then a remarkable thing happens. In chapter 36, 4-7, to seven, it says the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So they had to be commanded not to give, but to stop giving. The good news that their God was providing a way to make his dwelling among them was enough to move their hearts to this overabundant generosity. Then the rest of chapter 36 describes the making of the structure of the tabernacle. It was a tent with poles and curtains, and there was something distinctive about the design of the curtains. 36 verse 8 says, All the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, with cherubim skillfully worked. Cherubim were fearsome creatures used as warnings that a location or a building was a holy place into which an unauthorized person would enter under pain of death. Remember the cherubim that were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden after the man and woman were cast out, preventing anyone from coming back into the holy presence of God, because Eden was the world's first tabernacle and humanity its first priests. So this tabernacle is designed to remind people of Eden that God's holy presence, while very close, still remains inaccessible to sinful people. In a thirty-seven, chapter 37 and part of 38, Uh, There's a description of the making of all of the contents of the tabernacle, and we'll look at those in more detail in a moment. And at the end of chapter 38, there's an inventory of the materials that were used. Uh, And one example of this is in 38.24, it says, All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, in today's measurement, that's 994 kilograms, nearly one tonne of gold that had been donated freely by the people. The golden calf was just a piddling trinket in comparison to this tabernacle. Chapter 39 then describes the high priest's garments. And a key feature of that was the breastplate. And in the breastplate was embedded 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes so that whenever the high priest entered the holy place, he symbolically bore all of Israel on himself as he worshipped on their behalf. We'll look a bit more at the priests uh, when we move on to the book of Leviticus in a couple of weeks. Now, there's a repeated phrase that occurs uh, over 15 times through these chapters, and it's as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then at the end of chapter 39, 39, 43, we're told, and Moses saw all the work and behold, They had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it, then Moses blessed them. And then in 40 verse 33, we're told, so Moses finished the work. Now, all that language there should take us back again to the beginning, to the creation account. All that was created was according to the word of the Lord, as God spoke so it was done and when God saw all that he'd made he called it very good and he gave his blessing on humanity he blessed them so that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule and then there was a declaration that God finished his work of creation once everything was in place so this tabernacle is like a new creation. Israel is being taken back to the very beginning. It's like the reset button has been pushed and they're being shown that their God's purposes and plans that were set in motion from the very beginning, they still stand. Just as He created humanity in His image to fill and rule over creation, so now He's taking this small section of humanity that He chose from out of all the nations to be a picture of this big plan that he's working out for all peoples and ultimately for all of creation. So let's go on a whirlwind guided tour of this tabernacle. While Exodus describes it from the centre working outwards, we're going to imagine that we're entering through the outside gates and work our way into the centre. The first thing we see as we enter into the outer courts is the altar of burnt offering. Before anyone even considers drawing near to God, they must have their sin dealt with. It's our sin that has separated us from God and which deserves his holy wrath. And so sin must be atoned for by God's just wrath being poured out on the sinner or by a substitute someone in their place. So the burnt animal offerings that were consumed on this altar by fire, they were a picture of how God in his mercy causes his wrath to be turned away from us and placed on another so that his justice is satisfied and his mercy is available to us. So the altar of burnt offering tells us that God himself provides atonement for sinners. God himself justifies sinners. And it points forward to Jesus. Hebrews ten twelve to 14 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Next, we come to the bronze basin full of water. The priests would wash in this water to remove their ritual uncleanness. Now, all the laws about uncleanness relate to things in creation that display the consequences or the outworking of sin. Everything that's evidence of the curse sickness, disease, brokenness, dysfunction, and death. This is the second part of salvation, which I talked about last week. The sacrifice at the altar removes the guilt of sin and the wrath of God, and the water in the bronze basin provides washing and renewal that brings about a new start, a new creation. It's almost like a little echo of the flood, uh, that brought both judgment upon the world, but also uh, washed the world clean of uncleanness and gave the whole world a new start. This washing sanctifies a person, so they're now qualified to enter in through the curtain into God's presence in the holy places. So the Bronze Basin tells us that God himself washes sinners clean from their uncleanness. And it points us forward to Jesus. Hebrews 1019 to 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Those are sprinkled hearts. That's the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice that removes our sin. And then our bodies washed with pure water speaks of that washing, that renewal, that new start uh, symbolized by the bronze basin. So we now stand at the second entrance, the tabernacle itself. Over the tabernacle is stretched the tent of meeting. So there were two structures here. There's the tent of meeting that Moses would go into to meet with the Lord. But then within that tent of meeting is the actual tabernacle structure. As I said, the, these are the holy places that Hebrews 10 speaks of. The tabernacle tells us that God dwells among justified, cleansed sinners and it points us to Jesus. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there is literally the word for tent, he made his tent, his tabernacle among us. So as we pull aside the curtain and we enter into the tabernacle, the first section called the holy place, there are three items. On our right is the table on which is displayed bread. Now this bread isn't an offering to God, but it represents the manner that would be given on a daily basis over the 40 years of their travels, and also the covenant ratifying meal that Moses and the elders of Israel enjoyed when they were on top of the mountain and they ate and drank with the Lord. It speaks of the Lord's hospitality. He provides for us, he invites us to Come in and sit with him at his table and feast on the abundance of his household. So the table with the showbread tells us that God welcomes in and communes with justified, cleansed sinners. And it points us to Jesus. John 6, 48 to 51 says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This lampstand had a central stem and six branches. It's known today as the menorah. It's, its design is like a tree with the branches and then the seven lamps were made in the shape of flowers. It symbolizes the tree of life that grew in Eden. The lamps on the menorah were to burn perpetually. They were to never be allowed to go out and this symbolizes the light and life-giving presence of the Spirit. So the lampstand tells us that God gives light and life to justified, cleansed sinners. And it points us to Jesus. John 1, 3-5 says, All things were made through him, speaking of Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then straight ahead, in front of the veil, hiding the holy of holies, is the altar of incense. Now this too was to be continually burning, producing sweet-smelling smoke that represented the prayers of God's people. The smoke would rise up, it would fill the tent and then leak out the sides and rise up from the tent into the sky for the whole camp to see. It reminded them that their God delights to hear the pleas and the prayers of his people. So the altar of incense tells us that God hears and answers the prayers of justified, cleansed sinners. And it points us to Jesus Jesus said in John 16:23, In that day, the day that he sends the Spirit, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the veil, the veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Now only the High Priest could go behind this veil, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. This veil speaks not only of judgment, that our sins separate us from God, but also of His mercy. See, God shields His pure holiness from justified, cleansed sinners, until... We have been fully sanctified. And it points us to Jesus. Mark 15, 37 to 39 says, And Jesus on the cross uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. As the And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Just as the torn curtain uncovered God's glory in the temple, so too was the curtain pulled back from the centurion's eyes to see God's glory in him displayed in the cross. So as we go behind the veil, we come to the center of everything. And what we see is the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark is the mercy seat, guarded by two large statues of cherubim. And this mercy seat is the throne of God. Inside the Ark are the two tablets of stone, engraved by the Lord with the covenant, the the Ten Commandments, the, the summary of the law, the guarantee of the covenant. This is the Lord's pledge to them that he is their God and they are his people. This Ark of the Covenant tells us that God sits enthroned and reigns over justified cleansed sinners and that he keeps his covenant promises. The pledge of his covenant is there secure under his throne. And it points us to Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3-4 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is on the throne in the Holy of Holies. And the pledge of Jesus' covenant faithfulness isn't on tablets of stone. The pledge is himself. 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and speaking of the Last Supper, says he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever we partake of communion, It's as if we're actually stepping right into the Holy of Holies, coming before the throne of God and hearing that pledge again of his covenant faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Finally, notice what happens. As soon as uh, the tabernacle is all set up and as soon as the declaration is made that Moses finished the work, It says that the glory of the Lord descended and filled the tabernacle. Now, this glory was greater than the glory that Moses saw on the mountain or in the burning bush or in the tent of meeting when it was outside the camp. See, Moses had had exclusive access to go in and see the glory, but this manifestation of God's glory is so great that not even Moses Could enter. So the Lord is now pleased to make His dwelling among His people. Not because of anything they've done to make up for their sin and idolatry, but because of what He Himself has done in providing the tabernacle. He atones for their sin, He washes them clean, He communes with them, He gives them life and light. And he listens to their prayers. What great grace in light of all that they were and all that they'd done. What a magnificent picture for them and for us of what He has done in Jesus Christ. All of these things and more and in Jesus the full glory of God has come to us never to depart.